Okay, um, yeah, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to the Puro Puri podcast, uh, the first episode of the Puro Puri podcast. My name's Daniel. Um, we'll just leave it there for various reasons that we might come into later on. Um, and I'm joined by two titans, two leviathans, two behemoths of the sport. Um, the three pillars of podcasting. <laughs> absolutely. Um, first up there, you just heard his dulcet tones, um, Mr. David Fox. Wait, we going with your full name? Fuck it. Aye. This, this guy just does not give a fuck. Uh, David Forrest. And also uh, Mr. George Thompson hello. as well. Um, hello, gentlemen. Uh, okay, so just before we get started, I think the, the first sort of port of duty here is probably to introduce ourselves, let the listeners know a little bit about our background as wrestling fans, how we got into wrestling, that kind of thing. Um, so um, I'll throw it to you first, uh, David. Well, I mean, fuck. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I start. I, I remember I started watching wrestling in '99. I remember. I vividly remember the first ever, the first match that I like. I'm sentient about was the I Quit match. Oh. Rock and Mankind. Oh yeah. That was that. That was the the one. And I remember having a big argument at the time about how my friend didn't believe that Mick Foley had um had quit, and he said, "No man, it was a recording over the PA, and we had a massive <laughs> fucking argument in school." about this for like a week and then it turned out oh wait I actually was it was right <laughs> fuck you got anyway, worked this, I know and then and this continued until about 2004 I think the last last thing I've seen was JBL versus Eddie Guerrero <laughs> <laughs> that match oh the one where he bled like a, like a geezer yeah like yes. the proverbial stuck pig yeah it, it was a great American bash as well with the concrete crypt match oh god but, but I mean, you you probably know by now. I love that sort of shit. Mm, so yeah. that didn't put me off. But you know, women and like, you know, being being in school and heavy metal, it kind of got in the way yeah, <laughs> after yeah. a while. And then for about four years, I didn't do anything to do with wrestling. I had my like tapes that I had that I would sometimes watch when I was like, bored, as you do. Mm-hmm. But I didn't keep up with the current product apart from one night when I stayed over at a friend's house and we watched Raw. And the build up to Cyber Tuesday, or Cyber Sunday 2006. I can't fucking believe I remember that. All the but Cybers just, just was, roll into one these days, don't they? Exactly. But it was the one where they had the three champions and a triple threat. Mm. And it was just, it, yeah. And then in 2008, I moved in with my girlfriend and I realised that I was allowed to buy WrestleMania because my family would never allow me to buy it. I'd know that I wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't pay for it for me. And then I was like, what the fuck? I'm a, I'm an, I'm a grown adult. I can watch WrestleMania. And then. For about two years, I just watched WrestleMania, me and my, me and my wife, or my, my girlfriend at the time. And then I was like, I wonder, like, I watched the Rumble, so I know who's going to be in WrestleMania for, like, 26. And then I just kept going, and then this happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> fuck. So we'll come into, uh, in a few moments, about how we all sort of, because um, what, what, what we're actually going to do today for uh, everyone listening, we're going to talk about the first uh, Puro Puro are we going with Puro or Puro? Puro. Puro. Okay, we'll Puro go with Puro. Wrestler. That's what I call it. Yeah. I, uh, Japanese wrestling. Yeah, that, Japanese wrestling. The Japanese wrestling yeah. for re-podcast doesn't really yeah. work as well. Yeah. No, it doesn't really it's not alliterative in the slightest. No. Um, so, yeah, we're going to actually go into a bit more depth about the, the first matches, the first Japanese matches uh, that we all saw. Um, so we're going to go into that in, in, in just a bit. But um, before we do that, um, George, uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Okay, well, um, I remember back in the day, wrestling was real big in the schoolyard at primary school. And it used to be on Channel 4, so everyone used to watch Sunday Night Heat. Uh, the pay-per-views would be on, and you'd record them on your VHS. 
until a pensioner got their, their boobs out and they had to stop it, I think. Is that right? That was when wrestling no, peaked, they really. just put, <laughs> Yeah, they, they put it on delay, so it was like fucking an hour-long delay with adverts in, so I finished at fucking quarter to six in the morning. Um, so, basically, the first show I ever saw was uh, 2001 Royal Rumble, which, oh. yeah, it, it's a great show. I think that possibly the best Rumble match, 1992, be damned, and... Also, there's loads of other great stuff on the show, like uh, Benoit versus Jericho in a ladder match, uh, Kurt Angle versus Triple H with loads of shenanigans, Edge and Christian versus the Dudley Boys to open the show. This was just uh, early 2001. Wrestling was just absolutely awesome. It, it was a great run of shows. I have, I have one abiding memory about the 2001 Royal Rumble. Obviously, it was a great show, but you know, remember on the Honky Tonk Man, famed cunt Honk, Honky Tonk Man? Yes. Oh, horrendous in. human being, the Jerry... Honky Tonk Man. <laughs> Jerry Lawler just absolutely lost his mind. Does that about the Jerry Lawler fucking hates the Honky Tonk Man? <laughs> yeah. And Jerry Lawler singing along to the Honky Tonk Man's theme tune is the fucking funniest thing. I just have him shrieking, he's the Honky Tonk Man yeah, it's, over it's, and over again. It's amazing, he can't it's sing at all either, so like, it's even funnier. No. <laughs> You, uh, you know what? See, sorry, just so for those of you to know, one of my big passions outside of Japanese wrestling is uh, t- uh, U.S. territorial wrestling, and I'm particularly fond of the Memphis Territory. Um, so, believe it or not, I, I think that at one point when um, when Lawler lost a loser leaves town match, possibly against Bill Dundee. Um, he actually uh, the the kayfabe reason um, for him sort of um, 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 sort of um, um, sort of giving everything up was oh, well, I, I can't wrestle anymore. Now I'm going to go off and I'm going to become a singer. Like and, and that was the kayfabe reason in the show for him um, sort of for him not coming back or trying to sort of, you know get his place back. He's like oh, I'm too busy having a singing career, which was total bullshit. Um, but there's a Memphis curio for you all as well. That's cool. So um, yeah, basically yeah. 2001, I got proper into wrestling with my best mate from school. Not not wrestling with my best mate from school, but like watching it um, around about 2003 2004 we went to some of the live shows we saw the majesty of uh, kevin nash scott steiner tag team on one occasion <laughs> it was it was dog shit um <laughs> and then about 2006 sort of fell out the habit uh, the wwe which was to all intents and purposes the only wrestling i really knew at the time was the product wasn't very good and you know i, I got into other interests i mean I can't remember what they were. I think it involved playing a lot of video games. I might have done a bit, a bit of schoolwork. Who knows? And I got back into wrestling in um, 2011. I think this is the case of quite a few people actually. When uh, they did the whole CM Punk walking out on the WWE storyline, CM Punk mm. may may he rest mm. in peace. Oh God, <laughs> bless him. Ah, uh, poor, poor bloke. Oh, we laugh. Oh, poor Phil with his massive, massive cash payout. If anyone's listening to this three years down the line when CM Punk is like the welterweight champion of UFC, we're going to have dated ourselves more. <laughs> oh, there'll be egg on our face, that's for sure. Was it, was it the evolution of Punk where they, they like shot them on Christmas Eve? I can't imagine. Imagine me that fucking Christmas, that camera crew go, by the way, you can't spend Christmas with your fucking family. And you go to Chicago and spend it with Phil and AJ yeah. as they sit and watch telly. You've got to watch, you've, you've and, got to watch Phil like, red. you've got to watch Phil get tapped over and over and over and over <laughs> again by white belts in fucking Rufo Sport oh, on their shitty, on their shitty zero one yellow coloured mats. Oh dear. <laughs> The, the poor, poor bloke. Even getting to zero one. <laughs> no chance. Not with, not, not with that. Not, not being that bad at grappling. But, but yeah, so um, then I... Well, we'll get into Japanese wrestling in a moment, but my fandom grew and grew from 
sort of getting back into WWE again, remembering just how much damn fun I had watching wrestling when I was a teenager at the end of the day. It might have had something to do with the fact I was doing a, a postgrad degree and sort of wanted to retreat back into my sort of infantilized self when everything wasn't so hard and you could afford to piss away endless hours of, of your life watching wrestling. And now here I am pissing away endless hours of my life watching wrestling. <laughs> Um, right then, it only, it only leaves myself. Um, yeah, so. Will I get the whole this thing? Uh, I think so. No, just, mate, just last for the summer wine, I'll do, mate. Like, um, <laughs> so, yes, um, when I were a lad, uh, no, um, I was about actually five or six years old, I think, um, when I first got into wrestling. Um, and it was entirely, entirely through to a strange combination of um, early onset body dysmorphia. Um, and um, I think um, having to go and stay with my uh, auntie, who was lived down south, um, and I went to stay with her a bit, and it actually turned out later on that she was um, quite the racist, uh, and she's been excommunicated from the family altogether. Um, but anyway, that's besides the point. Um, she took me to a video shop, and uh, I was just meant to pick a video to sort of keep me, you know, entertained when I got in. And I saw um, a picture of the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, on one of these videos. You know when he had like the, the sort of the, the culturally insensitive uh, braids in his in his hair and that. Um, and I saw that and I thought, fuck me, this lad looks enormous. He looks like he's a superhero from a comic book. And I asked her to get it out for me. Um, and I watched that probably about five times um, in a row uh, that day. Um, and I fell in love with wrestling from there. The problem was, was that um, as people of sort of modest backgrounds or whatever, um, we didn't have Sky. Uh, so you, you, really, when you were growing up in, in Britain, you had to have Sky to sort of see all the sort of WWF stuff. We'd get a WCW show on ITV now and again, um, a sort of quite poor quality one, um, or the one that I'd probably I'd quite enjoy now. Um, and uh, yeah, that was the sort of childhood uh, bit. I loved it all the way through up to the Attitude Era, um, where obviously everyone else got on the bandwagon. And around that time, I started getting deeper into wrestling um, and getting into ECW and tape trading with um, sort of strange men with funny pseudonyms from Portland who'd send you things in paper bags. Um, <laughs> that's, that's very like 90s Tory, that's retro, that is. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, totally. Um, and then, so yeah, um, I, I started doing that and the, luckily there was actually a wrestling shop, which I'll talk more about later, but there was a wrestling shop in Manchester um, that I discovered, and he would sell um, pirated, uh, bootlegged sort of um, tapes that he'd just taped off DVDs or whatever um, for about six quid a pop. Um, and the first Japanese um, sort of um, wrestling I ever saw was just on his recommendation. He said, "You need to watch this tape. It's fucking amazing." Um, and that'll bring us to the uh, the first match I ever saw, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and yeah, now um, I am still wrestling obsessed. I'm 30 years of age. And um, I started a Facebook group where I could chat to me mates about wrestling, and that's how we all sort of got the idea of doing this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so. me, me, myself and you, you, Daniel, we met in person. Oh, at, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go into the story. Um, we met in person yeah. at an indie wrestling show in Bethnal Green in London in 2014. Um, it was Rev Pro. Yeah, Rev, Revolution Pro Wrestling, like one of the big shows at your call, always a fantastic time. And. It was the first indie show my girlfriend and I had seen together, and I, I basically sold it to her, like, these are all these ama amazing wrestlers you've heard of, but the big selling point really was uh, Rikishi, 
uh, Scotty Duhotty and Grandmaster Sexay being on the show. Bear in mind, Jushin, was Jushin Liger not on no, this Liger, well? Liger wasn't, but like <laughs> Kazuchika Okada was. Oh, Okada was though, yes. <laughs> how many how many drinks deep were you at this point? Oh, a lot. To explain, to explain, I'd been at the London Anarchist Book Fair that day. Um, do. Which, well, obviously, uh, which if you're someone <laughs> of, of, of my political persuasions um, and a raging domestic extremist, um, then, um, yeah, you, 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 that's, your, that's anarchist Christmas, basically. Everyone gets very excited about it. But also what tends to happen is about halfway through the day, you find uh, a group of people that are putting on a talk and you've got a very kind of um, small um, sort of disagreement with them and it gets you really angry. So you decide that you're going to split um, and you go to a pub. And I was getting drunk from about probably 12 o'clock in the afternoon to be honest um, and I turned up at the York Hall after being in the pub with some other mates beforehand and um, I feel really bad now that George just said that he doesn't like speaking to people um, who doesn't know because I was probably the last person on the list he wanted to speak to because I was fucking steaming by that point um, I mean honestly George what was I like at the at the, at the last match ba- basically you you were the the most enthusiastic man I've ever seen at a live event, and it's amazing because you can go to the Rev Pro website and watch the show on demand. And Daniel is right on the hard camera, marking out to completely everything. It was fantastic, but you know how it is what, when what you, was the final match? Uh, Will Ospreay versus um, Matt Seidel. That's right. <laughs> well, your favourite match in the world. Son. <laughs> hey hey hey! When I watch things live. It's 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 different. Um, we'll go into like um, I guess all of our sort of uh, uh, tastes in a minute. But when I when I'm watching a, sh- a live show, I don't really care about like um, my style biases like, like like that I normally have. Yeah. I'll take the piss and I'll um I'll I'll say some silly things maybe. But overall, if you give me a great spot fest live, I'm totally cool with yeah. that. It's when I get home and mm. I watch it again and think, fucking hell, I've only, like, well, life's too short. I could be watching fucking plodding Harley race matches from the 70s. Um, <laughs> but like, then, on that occasion, you know, you, know, you, you know, you hit the wall when you get really reeking and, um, you know, you sort of crash and by the time of the, um, of the main event, and this is a verbatim quote from uh, Mr. Daniel, um, he oh, just God. said, I can't deal with psychology, I just want him to do a load of flips so I can go home. <laughs> Yep, that was pretty much it. I was like, Osprey, Seidel, I know what we're here You for. know what? You demanded flips with no psychology, and by God, you got it. Yes, yes, I did. By the battle lord. Although, uh, although, although by the end of it, I, I think I was literally about to fall asleep, so I had to sort of um, run off before there was the big angle at the end. Um, but yeah, that, that's how me and George met as well. So um, yeah, that, that's an origin story for us. Um, basically, me and David got in touch primarily because we have a mutual friend. And we share a lot of interests in um, sort of weird music and stuff like that. Um, and um, David invited me to play a gig. And this is very relevant for this podcast because, David, tell me about the musical project that you invited me to play the gig with. Yeah, so <laughs> my musical project is called Abdullah Kobayashi. Of course. <laughs> and yes, and it involves basically two masked people that I don't know fighting. I say I don't know them. It's me and my friend. But, <laughs> but we brawl through the, the, the 13th mm. note. It's it's great fun and it's sore as hell. Don't do it. Just don't fucking do it. But I remember I I invite I thought Dan Dan like this, so I thought I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll invite him. And he went, Are you named after the cunt that eats glass? <laughs> I was like, Yes. He said, I'm in. I don't I don't even care what you sound like. I'm in. <laughs> it took me another two weeks to actually listen to it. I think I was just like, I don't I I know what this is all about. Of course I'm down with this. Like, um, 
so yeah, um, in, in a roundabout way, we've all come together um, through this Facebook group that I, that I run. We're planning on starting a website soon as well. By the time you've heard this podcast, it may well be coming through that website, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, this podcast is going to be about Japanese wrestling um, and its discontents. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Sort of shit you have to deal with. <laughs> right, okay, that's that's down. Uh, How right. many cans have you got there? Oh, it's not a can. I don't do cans. I don't have enough money. It's um, <laughs> it's a three ninety nine bottle of Barnstormer. Um, now this is um, actually mixed with. This is mixed with um, Asda's own brand orange juice, orange squash. Um, so, yeah, so basically, this um, this is known as a Dan cocktail around the area of Newcastle. That I will say, this is coming from someone who always cooks spaghetti with those pasta shapes. I always cooked it and cut my hands, so I don't know what's blood and pasta sauce, <laughs> I didn't it anyway. Oh, so I know exactly what you mean, I know exactly what you mean. It's just like, I'm, I'm way too deep into this at this point, it's all red, it doesn't matter. If it's in me before, I'll go back in me again. The struggle, the struggle is real, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Like, uh, if it hasn't gone down the tent, it's not going in my mouth. Uh, <laughs> anyway, to the regiment. So what I've got So guys, now we're going to talk a little bit about how we actually got into Japanese wrestling. Um, we've done the wider wrestling um, kind of habit that we picked up. Let's talk about our first experiences of Japanese wrestling. Um, so uh, David, just you first. Well, um, my recollection of Japanese wrestling back before, uh, well, back before I, I got out and got into heavy metal and girls and just like the not this shape basically um i remember i had very vague there was two reference points well three maybe you had the chris benoit tape with great sasuke on it where i knew he was in the super j cup but Mm -hmm. i never watched it yeah and then you also had jishin lager and ultimo dragon wcw who were i mean that that was there and to to this day liger is still Still one of my favourites. Liger's, you know, Liger's got two two contenders for match of the year on my on my match of the year ballot at the moment. Yeah, like, he's, so, he's fifty one. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Liger's so good that my girlfriend is a huge mark for him, despite the fact she has barely seen any of his older stuff from the nineties. It's literally based on current New Japan Liger, and he's still in her favourites. And to be honest, he deserves to be. That's fucking exactly amazing. Exactly. 
Um, no, th- I mean, the man can have a match with anybody. Uh, literally anybody. Mm. If you can put him against any person, he will have a good match. So, uh, like, I knew of Liger, and like, I really, it went from like, Nitro when he'd fight like, fucking Silver King or something like that. <laughs> hey, don't do Silver King. No, hey, no, you do not be deceptive by his stocky physique. Seriously. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, and then, as well as that, there was Taka Michinoku. However, like, Taka, I, did, I, I, knew, I just knew him as the guy who gets smashed every week and landed in the face at the Rumble. But when I got back into wrestling, when it, uh, in 2010, when I started to watch the Rumble through to WrestleMania, I went. I've had, I decided I'm going to go into the the IWC. I'm going to become a member of the IWC, and I joined Wrestling Forum. Oh, you know? <laughs> oh, I, I know. It's hey, look, look, look. We've all it's got. Full of <laughs> we've all got to start somewhere, sweetie. Like <laughs> it's okay. Like don't worry. And then uh, I remember. I remember like. The, like, you would you would immediately have a conversation about anything WWE. Someone would always pipe in, going, "Ah, it's good, but it's it's not all Japan in the nineties. <laughs> Fuck off! <laughs> I give this they're la- like just the, the most miserable bastards in the world. Hey, they still exist, by the way, you know. Do every so often I'll go on just to like it's you not, know how it's not as good as six three ninety four. Yeah, but nothing is, you fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> Stop setting your bar so fucking high. You'll be miserable all the time, you stupid prick. Sorry, I know. Okay. How, how was your wedding day? It was good. <laughs> Not as good Four as and a half stars. It wasn't at the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> Spe- hey, speaking of which, I know somebody who's on their fucking honeymoon and they're going to a fucking New Japan show. They're in Tokyo and they're going to fucking New Japan. And I'm raging. And, but, he, and, yeah. here, and here's me stuck on Tinder. Fucking hell. Like... Well, I, I, see, no, I spent my honeymoon watching Brock Lesnar to break the streak, so I can't say anything. That was my honeymoon. That's reasonable. So, though. It is. Yeah, and like, my wife genuinely feared for my life. <laughs> she thought I was going to jump the barrier and attack Brock Lesnar. But <laughs> you know that. You know what? We're all emotional. It was a tough time. We are. But, did you, yeah, so did you mean like... like um, did you mean this? That was my honeymoon, sort of. I, I didn't realise you meant it literally. I thought you know when people say, "Oh, that was my Woodstock." No, <laughs> I no, thought that it was, was your literal honeymoon. honeymoon. <laughs> That's awesome. As in, like, I said, we'd always joked that we'd go to WrestleMania one day, and then realised we had like three and a half grand and wedding presents, and we're like, I was like, "Well, I should go to WrestleMania," and my wife was like, "Aye, maybe we should." So then that, hey, that was it. I tell you what, David. I tell you what, David. Son, she's a keeper. You don't know how many Vader All Japan matches she's endured with me over the last couple of weeks. So. And, endured is not the yeah. word. Enjoyed is the word you're looking for, I think, when it comes to Vader, yeah. <laughs> Vader matches. I was saying that the person who's on honeymoon at the moment, I, well, actually, I'll come to that later because that has a relevance to our, our, our talk in a bit. But yeah, so wrestling forum, everyone just being pricks, talking about how <laughs> Misawa Kawada is the best wrestling match of all time. And fuck all compares to it. My <laughs> punk's shit promo was good, but it, it didn't have fucking Kawada in it, so it's nothing. Like, and then I was kind of like, I, and then I remember, was it Senior Lariato put all 16 Misawa mm. Kawada matches up on YouTube? Yeah, shout out to Senior Lariato, definitely. Yes. But it was also, at that, at that point, I, obviously I love my brawls, and it was effort, and they're like, yeah, I love my brawls, and it was just finding the most ridiculous shit. I seem to remember I was in an EFED at some point, ah. and then they, they would have like a list of all like the match types you could have, and I was like, these aren't fucking real matches, and you'd obviously Google them, and then find, oh wait, Japan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's it. So yes, so that's how I found out about Japan. 
And so to sort of um, sum up, because uh, I think this is important, uh, just because like we, we we know you a little bit and, and your wrestling fandom. What is, what would you say are the sort of the, the things that sort of get you um, excited when it comes to Japanese wrestling? Because I know there are some specific things that you're quite into. I'm, I'm, I'm unashamedly, I, I like shit wrestling. Like I'm, like I, I love shit wrestling, right? And there's it, nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with that. It's always as interesting. It has yep, to have a unique yep. selling point. That's what I look for. And with, and um, with Japan, they have their own unique selling point by the fucking battle load. So death matches. And just comedy matches as well. It's always just, you know, something unique. It doesn't matter what it is, something unique. And Japan always constantly innovates. Always. It doesn't matter if it's in terms of work rate or violence or just cop jokes or <laughs> what. Just, you know, anything. I mean, but- I, th- I think we should probably set our stall out right away in the sense <laughs> that... Um, I think we should, make, <laughs> we should make we should make this fairly sort of um, uh, well known. I think from the start because th- there's no point in sort of hiding behind it. I think it's fair to say, and any any of you guys can speak up if you disagree with me. I think it's fair to say that what we're going to try and do on this show is try and steer away from this kind of constant um, uh, obsession that wrestling fans have with Japanese wrestling about everything being about work rate yeah. um, or the traditionally understood notion of work rate because uh, I think to varying degrees and perhaps for different reasons and in different contexts we all kind of think that that approach to wrestling is kind of bullshit and outdated mm-hmm. now am I right? Yeah Mm-hmm yeah okay cool yeah, yeah yeah it's bollocks so 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 we will be talking um about um bjw um fucking main event um crazy acid trip um you know like um poseidon matches um alongside and with the same gravitas probably um that we will attach to um a kawada match or a masala match so with a, you... just as much conviction yeah and you'll know it'll get to the point where when they look at the description and on itunes and they see what we're reviewing and they'll see some stupid bjw match <laughs> and they'll rub their hands in glee they'll be like right we're nowhere in for a good in here we're we're nowhere yeah we're in for a ride Ex- exactly um okay cool um, so yeah, George, how about yourself? Um, when did Japanese wrestling first come onto your radar? Uh, well, David, you said um, people like Great Sasuke, Ultimo Dragon, Jushin Liger, who were featured reasonably prominently in um, in well, Sasuke wasn't in WCW, but uh, Liger and Ultimo Dragon were, and they were taken reasonably seriously, albeit with the same stereotype of the inscrutable Japanese that seems to pervade in uh, you know a lot of American wrestling even now. And um, mine was somewhat different in that the Japanese wrestlers I knew were not taken seriously whatsoever. We're talking Takamichinoku and Funaki in uh, Attitude Era WWF. Um, And people like, um, going forward a bit, here's the name for you, uh, Kenzo Suzuki. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember him. um, That, That poor London match, by the way. Hey, hey, have you not heard the, the story about who who it was meant to be instead of Kenzo? It was meant to be Tanahashi, wasn't it? Yes, in, and it was meant to be against the, Benoit the... for the World Heavyweight Belt. That was going to be the programme, Tanahashi and Benoit. I did not know what that. Fucking main event programme. Fuck. Fucking, yeah, instead we get Kenzo fucking Suzuki. Yeah, Kenzo Suzuki with his, his, his geisha valet, who was actually his wife, and they wanted to call him Hirohito, if you can believe that. 
when he debuted. <laughs> yeah, yes, I can. I really yeah. can't believe that. Yeah, and um, probably the one who was... The Emperor! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> probably the one who was um, taken the most seriously in terms of how they were presented was probably uh, Yoshihiro Tajiri on uh, SmackDown. And even then, he was the same, you know, a stereotype of the inscrutable Japanese with mystical powers, which means he can spit mist. And mm. so those are really the, the Japanese wrestlers... Um, I knew when I was growing up. Now, there's one important exception to this, which is, do we're all British? Do we remember the Wrestling Channel? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, the Wrestling Channel, yeah. uh, Channel Four Two Seven on Sky, I believe, set up by a load of British hardcore uh, wrestling fans, and they bought up loads of tapes from various foreign and indie promotions until the money ran out. God bless that <laughs> ship and everyone who sailed on it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know every time someone mentions that, it just makes me really sad because at the time, I should have fucking, like, I had a VCR player. Yeah. I should have fucking taped everything. Everything. Oh, and, like, no. I just didn't. And, like, I kind of just watched other things. It was kind of at the tail end of my mm. wrestling fandom. Yeah, same. And, oh, it's just, no, you just realise that. I just wish I, I, it, was, it was still on. It was yeah. it was a goldmine because this is, I mean, I think 2004 uh, thereabouts. This is before YouTube was even set up. You know, if you mm. wanted to, and we'll get into this a bit later, if you wanted to watch um, Japanese wrestling, you had to, you know, get the old uh, brown paper bag from, uh, from America, as you said earlier. You know, you couldn't just type in Tanahashi versus Okada into Google and be able to watch a link. It really mm. was a, le- a legit goldmine. And so yeah. the wrestling I saw was um, Pro Wrestling Noah on uh, on the wrestling channel. Mm. Now, we'll go into it a little bit later because my... What what, what year Noah is this then? This Just is about so 2004, I think, so in the middle of the Kabashi well, okay, right. Um, yep. Now, the reason that I haven't chosen anything from Noah as the first Japanese match I watched, even though the first Japanese match I watched was from Noah, is because I haven't a damn clue who I was watching back in the time it could have been me back Taniguchi yeah it could have been some lower card job it could have been Misawa and Kabashi like who knows I've got no idea yeah. so the match I've chosen is actually the first Japanese match I went out of my way to watch when I got back into wrestling in um, in 2011 that sort of time so mm. that was really again when I got back into wrestling as a mature adult YouTube being a thing you can very easily watch wrestling that's somewhat off the radar of, of, of the mainstream um, even though Japanese wrestling is getting a bit more popular but it's still niche by comparison to WWE yeah. in this country and so it, it, yeah it really just made me want to look beyond what WWE was offering up at the time and um, here we are I'm here in 2016 uh, 50,000 words into a novel about Rikki Dersan <laughs> Yeah, it's taken this long for us to reveal to you that uh, we actually have someone here who's literally writing a novel about Ricky Dozan, um, which is pretty fucking cool, really, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I'm sure we'll get more updates about uh, about uh, George's Ricky Dozan novel as we uh, as, as we as we go on. Yeah, many yeah, plugs. and so many plugs. It's not even funny. Wait, and wait, wait till he's got the book out. I've got like another album out, and then David's got some at the hook as well. Like on Bandcamp, we'll be fucking bombarding you. We, we can do our own adverts. It's going to be good. Like we don't even have to get CougarLive.com. That's to, right. Uh, yeah, we can do our own adverts, and we'll make we'll make some kind of like nineties um, lower division Doncaster over style slush fund out of the money and fucking. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's another thing. There will be copious references probably throughout this to obscure '90s football, um, specifically the lower leagues of Britain. So um, apologies for that um, as we go along. Uh, but yeah, um, shit. Well, it's me now, I guess. Mm-hmm. So 
I really got into Japanese wrestling specifically because, as I mentioned before, there was a shop in Manchester which sold um, bootlegged wrestling videos. And I'd gotten to the point where uh, the Attitude Era was great. Um, I was watching pretty much that, all of that, really. Um, watching WCW as well, even as it sort of um, began to get really, really kooky. Um, and then beyond that, um, I essentially... Uh, went to the shop to, uh, and said to the guy, look, um, I'm, I'm fed up with this. What, what else can you show me? He showed me ECW videos. Um, and through ECW videos, um, which became my number one uh, promotion at that time, like a lot of 15-year-old boys, I think, um, that were going through that phase, um, that was all I watched. And I saw Tajiri um, in there just a few weeks ago having an incredible match in the Cruiserweight Classic, by the way, and still an amazing worker. Um, and I saw him work and thought, ah, this looks this looks pretty good. Um, and then a few months later, I went in and he handed me a tape that was just called um, Japan TV. And that was all it was called. It was just Japan TV. And do you remember Longplay? Oh, yeah. On, on, on VCRs and that, when you could actually press a button that, it's fucking magic, this, um, that would, would basically make the tape, that if it was recorded on Longplay, could go double the time. So if you, had a, if you had a three and a half hour tape, you could get six, seven hours worth of footage on it. Um, and it was just this thing called Japan TV. And <laughs> this wrestling shop, it was called Extreme Central in, in Manchester. It had um, a, what we called the Bible that he had behind the counter, which was a laminated book where he'd recorded every single match on every single tape and put his own star rating on it. Not Meltzer's, <laughs> his own fucking star rating on it. And I was just looking through this Japan, um, you know, um, TV tape, and it was like five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars. I thought, fuck me. Um, and I bought that, and that introduced us to the um, the match I'm going to talk about. Will introduce me to the match we're going to talk about later on. Um, so yeah, um, I got through, uh, got into it through the uh, the strange man behind the counter at Extreme Central, who now runs a promotion actually in Manchester called H uh, HXC. Oh, is he that dude? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. I think it's the same guy. So, yeah, um, and I used to do a lot of my tape trading through him. Um, so eventually I would start buying stuff off, like, people that would supply him. It's a bit like drugs, this. Um, and, um, you know, he'd just give us the direct uh, sort of email for them, and I'd, I'd get in touch, and, yeah, I used to get sent stuff. So, yeah, that pretty much brings us um, all up to date, I think. Um, so I was thinking that it might be a good idea now to maybe get into um, talking about our first uh, Puro matches that we saw. Um, on the... August running order I have here, George. You are up first. Um, so, do you want to tell us about um, the match that you've um, that, that you've chosen as the first one that you saw and that you'd like to talk about? I shall. Um, so, if we remember what David said earlier that he's sick of people twatting on about nineties all Japan, I'm about to twat well, about <laughs> about nineties all Japan. <laughs> hey, hey! As long as it's not all nineties all Japan, we'll be fine. No, Don't worry. No. I'll, I'll I'll even I'll even it out. Don't worry. So, okay, I, I'm a man of diverse tastes. So, um... Old Japan and Noah. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, read, you read my mind. So, we got um, both I kinds think... of music, country and western. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just a bit of background Can information, it. because I think if, if anyone's listening to this and you have, you've watched maybe a bit of Japanese wrestling and you've seen maybe Nakamura and Asuka and uh, Hideo Itami and people like that on WWE and... You're getting confused by names like Ricky Dozan and Abdullah Kobayashi and stuff like that being being thrown out. Um, I just thought I'd give a sort of potted summary of this the the, the era of all Japan that I'm going to be talking about. Um, the match that I've chosen is 
uh, one which is so notable amongst uh, hardcore Japanese wrestling fans that it is simply known by its date, 9-6-95, 9th of June 1995. Um, it is uh, Mitsuharu Misawa and Kenta Kabashi defending the All Japan World Tag Team Championship against uh, the Holy Demon Army of Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Taue. So basically, one of the reasons that 90s All Japan um, is is so famous is because of something called the King's Road. Basically, what the King's Road was was, I guess, half wrestling style and half angle. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it's more of a narrative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, it's not really angles as such as everything built on. There's not, you know, there's. It, it continuously goes, so even when something, you know, you've got a, a definitive end to something, it still contributes to it afterwards. It's all one weaved yes. yeah. narrative. I mean, how, how I would define King's Road would always be um, similar to that, but I, the only thing I'd add would be this was the most, probably the most traditionally booked um, promotion in the world yeah, very conservative at that point. All, all this stuff um, was stories that were told in the ring. Yeah. Um, it was all stuff that was told through um, matches and, and psychology. Um, uh, so, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so um, All Japan, just going back to the, the start of it, was um, started by a guy called uh, Shohei Barbo, or Giant Barbo, as he was uh, commonly known. Dan, you can't, you can't see this, but Daniel's doing a little fist pump. He is a big Barbo fan, as am I. Love Barbo. Yeah. All hail Barbo. Yeah. Solidarity, brother. And... Um, <laughs> So 1972, All Japan was established by Giant Barber, who was um, you know, the, the main eventer. He, he won all the belts, he won the, the major tournaments, but in the mid-80s, he began to take a little bit of a, a back step in favour of um, some of the new generation, people who we will come back to later, like Genichiro Tenryu, Jumbo Saruta, Ricky Choshu. Um, but for whatever reason, um, in the early 90s, um, Ricky Choshu had gone back to New Japan. Um, Tenryu had formed his own promotion with Blackjack and Hookers, and um, the other, yeah, who's the other one? Oh, Jumbo had um, he was slowing down a little bit, although still fantastic. But you know, the wrong side of forty. And in 1992, uh, contracted hepatitis and was uh, never the same again physically. So the idea was that the I guess the third generation of All Japan main eventers would be good enough to uh, touch the gods. They were called the Four Heavenly Pillars, or the Four Pillars of Heaven. That name is still one of the fucking best it's, summations it's of the importance of four guys to a company ever in wrestling. Like, Absolutely. Exactly, yeah. And um, the reason, I think one of the reasons I've chosen this match is, well, not just because it was the first Japanese match I've, uh, I sought out of my own volition, which is, of course, the point of this episode of the podcast, but also because it contains the four pillars, Misawa, Kabashi, Kawada, and Taue. Um really hitting their stride because like you said David the King's Road is a narrative you know there was a very complex set of callbacks to previous encounters so this was by no means the first time these two teams had hooked up uh, quite the opposite but you know the the narrative really drew on their previous encounters to create this really thrilling build where fans who were in the know and had seen all their previous encounters would recognize the ways in which they were repeating spots um, subverting what you would expect and really building to this uh, sort of quite rich tapestry of of, uh, of professional wrestling uh, also can I just say um, you're talking about the four pillars of heaven also is the holy demon army not the best name for a tag team you have ever heard in your life 
Oh, it's the best. Absolutely. It's the best. Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's no contest. That is the best name for a tag team ever. Um, and, yeah, we can prob- probably come into this later on, but um, for my money, top top two or three greatest tag team of all time without question. Absolutely. And in terms of the name, it's up there with um, other great Japanese wrestling stables such as Stack of Arms and Sternness. Oh, Sternness. I think the best thing about the Holy what? Roman Army... One uh, name. Sorry, the, um, the Holy Demon Army is that... Like the best Japanese tag team names, it's bombastically awesome, but makes no goddamn sense when you think about it. No, no, not really. Demons aren't holy. Two of them hardly constitute an army. It's kind of like what Voltaire said about the Holy (laughs) Roman Empire. You know, they're not holy, they're not demons, and they're not an army. See, I was going to go with a Warhammer analogy, which is significantly less um, intellectually pleasing. Um, but um, <laughs> it was the only thing I could think of, which was the Chaos Army in, in Warhammer. But that's the level of my critique after a few ciders. So sorry, carry on, George. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Well, that was really my stuff on the background. So, um... well, um, one thing you should probably mention: you mentioned about how this kind of went into like, you know, previous encounters. Yeah. Kawada and Masawa. Oh, the, yeah. Oh, this in this match, it's just yeah, like. Well, we mentioned now that the whole bit Kawada and going into this match. I think it's important for the context of this match, yeah. So, we're we're, we're going to probably do a full episode on, on the four pillars yeah. at some point. But yeah. I think for this match, um, if in case anyone wants to look it up on YouTube afterwards, to know the story makes it a lot better. Yeah, I mean, um, Kawada at this point had misplaced Misawa many times in singles matches, tag matches, six mans, and never pinned him. Never and they, that kind of fed into it and obviously the crowd knew this as you were saying knew the crowd who were in the know they were into this so whenever there was you know a near fall or you know they were always biting on it because they, they thought you know is this the time and I thought that was it was it was unbelievable how just how much that really played into the match and really added to it it's something that I really appreciated now. yeah the crowd heat is absolutely phenomenal for this so I mean I've seen this. I saw this match back in uh, 2012. I think was when I saw it the first time. And I didn't. I watched a lot of matches with these wrestlers and between these teams in the interim. But actually, I only wa- I've only seen this match twice, and the second time was for this podcast. And I'll tell you why. Basically, to give you an analogy, my favourite novel of all time is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I read this when I was at school, when I was about 16 or 17, and it absolutely blew my mind. And I've not read it since because I'm absolutely terrified that if I go back and read it again, it's not going to be as good. I do that with stuff all the time, by the way. Like, yeah. there's so much, there's so many albums that I heard that I just never want to go back to because they'll never be the same and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, mm-hmm. ab- absolutely. It's like, I mean, so... Same with, like, bands. Like, when you yeah. go to a gig and you see it and it's just the gig and you're like, you know, you would never, you, you don't go see them again because you know it'll never be as good as that one. Yeah, well, what's the point? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean... Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier about how they went to WrestleMania when when the streak was ended. Yeah. Since then, I have no interest in going to a WWE show. Yeah, it's peaked. I, I've had yeah. my it's my one WWE show. I mean, that that was my first ever show, and I'm like, I, I don't ever need to go see another one. I I've got I've had my moment. Nothing nothing can match that. Yeah. Now, one thing I will say about this, what you what you were saying about not going back to watch it. Now. As you mentioned before, with like your first match was Noah, and you can't remember what it was. Yeah. I found that I watched a lot of this stuff a good few years ago when I first got into it, and I've forgotten all about it. Mm. So I'm rewatching a lot of this stuff pretty much for the first ever time, 
with added context. So it, this, yeah, this is like the first time I've seen this in many, many years, and I totally forgotten everything about it. Yeah. I so mean, just because it was, it's just a blur of right. I watched this match, this match, this match. You kind of none of it sank in. This, this is exactly what I was, I was, I was going to say because I was terrified that I would rewatch this match, and you know, because I've watched a hell of a lot of uh, of Japanese wrestling since I watched. Uh, you know, this my my first Japanese match that I actually remember, and like I say, is it going to blow my mind? And I actually have to say, I probably enjoyed it more the second time, if anything, because mm. yeah. I knew because I knew the context. Because I had never seen any of these men before. I didn't know why Misawa's elbows were a big deal. You know, I didn't know what any of their finishing moves were. Why has Kabashi got his knee taped up? Well, we'll get to that. Where did that come? Well, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. oh, I know, mm. but um, yeah, um, I mean. Do you? Where do you want to start? Well, I think we'll just start with. I've got some observations down here. It sort of follows a chronological narrative throughout the match. Mm. So literally, yeah. my first note just says, not just Kabashi's knee, but his entire left leg is bandaged. Yeah. And this is yeah. Going to be... My first note is Kabashi bandage leg. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. This is going to be really important. As and you 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 can um you can go watch all these matches. All these matches we're discussing on this episode. You can go on YouTube, such as the wonder of uh, of modern technology. And so that's the first thing I noticed. Kabashi's entire left leg is bandaged. The second thing I noticed, Giant Barber is on commentary, and you can tell it's him because he has the deepest voice <laughs> I have ever heard. <laughs> it's like that Russian <laughs> call singing where you can barely hear it, and when you do hear it, like it makes you want to shit yourself. Yeah, it's a proper brown note like shit going on. Like he sounds, he sounds like an IRE tip off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Mate, mate, was no other continuity all Japan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine him bobbing down the Falls Road in a flat cap. <laughs> all six foot eight of him. <laughs> Actually, my, my favourite, just digressing for a little bit, my favourite John oh, Barber related anecdote is possibly the most Dave Meltzer thing ever written. Was when he, he wrote in an edition of The Observer... The J- Japanese baseball almanac lists Giant Barber's height as six foot nine and a half, which is odd because when I met him in person, he looked to be no more than six foot seven and three quarters. Fuck off! But <laughs> this is right. M- Meltzer's being picky there, but wasn't it also Meltzer that said, "Oh, Andre was only about six foot five. Like <laughs> he, he comes, he comes out with some shit sometimes. His uncle Dave. No, like, have you ever, have you ever heard the, the call of him on? Is it? I think it was at a phone in a wrestling observer radio where somebody phoned in asking about. Um, what happened to Bret Hart's man yes. in Springfield that he bought off Mr. Oh, Burns yeah. and Meltzer had and never totally seen the Simpsons yeah. no and he's like I, I didn't know that Hart had a, a house yeah. in America he's never like, seen the Simpsons <laughs> yeah and like uh, what's his name Bru- uh, Alvarez, Alvarez was sitting there yeah. you could clearly see you couldn't hear him but you could clearly feel the stifled laughter <laughs> he was about to just like you know lose himself but yeah so I, I don't remember Bret buying a house he had one in had one in Winnipeg, but not in, not in America. That's the thing about you know, you know, that's just the mentality. That's the thing about Mad Money Melts. Like he he lived wrestling. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about you know wider pop culture. He's anything an amazing else. man. He's he's, <laughs> yeah. he's got his niche, and my God, he's filled it. So yeah, yeah, um, really so the match starts. Um, Kawada gets Irish whipped, and rather than going back to the center as you would expect. He just kicks Miss Hour off the apron. It and yeah. this is the no. point at which I thought to myself, "This is going to be for me." You know, yeah. What we're going to get is a slow build, main... lots of psychology, great heat, 
people fucking each other up big time. You know what? This is going to be my jam. And I I have a, a note here. It's about the ninth one down. I'm going to skip to it because it literally just says Kawada is a massive prick. With yes. Massive in capital letters. Yes. Just the biggest prick of all time. Oh my god. Unbelievable. I mean, you mentioned before about how this this match is. Um, there's certainly an inter. This is the great thing about this match. You can look at this match from the perspective of any of the four guys involved, right? And you can see perfect motivation. You can see a perfect story about about who in that match they want to fucking target, why they want to do it. And you can read this entire match from Kawada's perspective as being him going, fuck this. I have pushed the limits of sportsmanship to the fucking end. <laughs> if you have a knee that is fucked up, Kabashi, I will kick the shit out of it. I don't care. I will get in a dig at Misao when I get that fucking uh, you know, Irish whip. It's beautiful. It is fantastic. And I think I think at this point I will just like try and throw out my biases here as well because it's only fair. I'm not going to try and you know um, uh, kid anyone. I think Toshiaki Kawada is the greatest Japanese wrestler of all time. Um, I voted him, I think, number three in uh, ever um, in my in my PWO poll. Um, only above him, I think, was Flair and Funk. So I am going to be a total homer for Kawada throughout the rest of this analysis. Yeah. On you go. I mean, I, I must emphasize that this podcast isn't just going to be us, you know, spooging our collective loins over over stuff. But yeah, this match is, I think, particularly. But 90% of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Um, so the other 10 percent is just football references. <laughs> and jokes about the RA. Um, <laughs> so after Misawa is kicked off the apron, he tags into an absolutely deafening pop. Then. Kawada just repeats the trick, kicks Kabashi off the apron, who then gets into the ring to sort him out. Um, and I've I've used the word I've used the phrase to fuck up quite a lot in these notes. I've got mm. Tawe moves out of the way of a Misawa dive, so Kabashi fucks Tawe up instead. And <laughs> Misawa probably the first big spot of the match I think that w- really caught my eye was um, Misawa's elbow suicida. The, the what you call the suicide dive through the ropes that you see in damn near every WWE match nowadays, but also a oh, lovely yeah. little elbow strike at the end of it. Sadly, Kabashi's standing in front of the camera and he is a big lad, so we miss it. But I'm sure I'm sure it looked fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So WCW 2000. <laughs> yeah. The one thing you you you've, I think you've glossed over it. I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but right at the start, at the very opening exchange. There was a moment where they go for like the wrist lock, and then Tawi kicks Kabashi, on the, Kabashi in the leg. Yeah. yeah. And the look from Kabashi is if you told him that your favourite series of The Simpsons was season sixteen. Oh. It's unfucking believable. Yeah. And at that moment, and you, this, this is it. This is the match for me. Oh, that it's look, it's it's just, proper filth from that point oh, on. It really right. is, and it's all centred around you know these real two dynamics. Kawada's never pinned Misawa, and Kabashi's leg is real hurt. You know, you've got kicks from Tawe, knee drops from Kawada. Um, we've got a sharpshooter from Tawe that makes the rocks look amazing. I mean, I mm. love Tawe, but sometimes, you know, Tawe's strengths are in the psychology, not the application, I think yeah. it's fair to say. Yeah. And, and, and if we ever talk about, for some reason, I don't know why we would, but if we ever talk about John Cena on this show, I will fucking go to bat for the, um, the sort of technical application of moves not being as massively important as other things so uh, yeah oh yeah absolutely like john barber a lot of his stuff looked looked flat out bad but he can put a match together. oh it looks terrible but who cares he puts a great match together fuck it but. yeah so exactly. so yeah we've got we've got and then um so one of the things that and if we ever review something like uh kabashi versus kensuke sasaki um you and you'll see this when you watch current new japan they do love a good chop exchange that that's something that and and a word that you might hear is uh, bushido 
uh, sort of the honor code or um, fighting spirit, uh, tukon in uh, in Japanese. You know, basically to put it into in terms for you know, uh, English people, I'm a retard bastard, and I'm going to prove I'm a retarder bastard than you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. And in this match, Kawada finds the perfect way out of a chop exchange because you cannot beat Kabashi in a chop exchange. He's known for it. So Kawada decides to hold with this and stops, starts chomping, uh, chomping. Jesus Christ, that's a different kind of match. Stomping the <laughs> shit out of Kabashi's leg. It's mm. oh, utterly oh, brutal. God. It's actually quite, quite grim to watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, he murders that leg. He absolutely just goes to town that he he's found his purpose in life and mm. is destroying kabashi's leg yeah. i mean if if you're if your only reference point that you've got for sort of working a limb is if you're a wrestling fan who's kind of relatively up on like the past and you, you you've maybe watched some Arn anderson matches or something yeah. like that um this is a level of uh, anderson's clinical Kawada is just fucking unhinged about it. He doesn't care. Like it, it stomps. It's it, it, it. There's no twisting grapevines. It's just knees and stomps and fucking. He's elbows. a nasty bastard. Uh, yeah. It's amazing, but I think even nastier than arguably than Kawada in this match. Now, when we mention Akira Tawe, a lot of people say that he's by far the worst of the four pillars. I don't necessarily think that's fair. No, they're, they're thinking about it the wrong way. Yeah, he's an he's an. I think he's an excellent worker in his own right, but you kind of have to get used to the way he does things. He's he's incredibly like graceless. You know, he used to be a sumo wrestler. Um, he lumbers about a lot, but and I really didn't get Tawei at first. You know, I I I didn't take much notice of him the first time I watched this match. I watched some of his stuff. I know one of the things uh, me and you bonded over Daniel when we first met was that. Um, Tawei versus Yuji Nagata match from 2003. Oh, I love that match. And yeah, yeah I like much. it too. But I thought when I watched it, you know, most of the good stuff is Nagata. But the thing that I really like about Tawei, now that I've come to sort of appreciate what he's about, is his aura of just casual brutality. Yes. He will do heinous things to you, and he won't even care, and he'll do it like he's putting absolutely no effort into it, just because he exists to cause this kind of destruction. And the example from this match is that Antawi is known for his uh, choke slams. In fact, I think, barring Abraham Lincoln, he's the first person in recorded wrestling history to have uh, <laughs> to have got it over as a main uh, as a main move. Tawe choke slams Misawa onto Kabashi's leg. Oh, oh God! No. Oh, no! oh no! Oh God! Right, right. This is one of the greatest spots in any um, sort of big time main event match in any territory ever. I don't care what anyone says. Um, th the moment that this happens, the whole match goes up another level. And this is the point for me that it goes from being this really great All Japan main event in that vein to being, for, actually for my money, um, you'll get this people, I'm given to hyperbole, as you probably noticed. But again, this is, this is I think, the greatest match of all time. Um, and it's because of everything that comes after this bit. It just goes up another level after this. Yeah, I mean... I have a note here um, saying that every single move Every single one that Kawada does to Kabashi is targeting the leg. Every single one. And now, nowadays, you would have, you know, the people targeting the leg. There'll be other moves in between. There'll be like transitions so like, between leg work. Every single one. I, it, it's it's just there is no remorse. No, just yeah. yeah. This is why um uh the revival are so good nowadays in uh, NXT because yes. they will get a hold of your leg and they will not let go until they have thoroughly you know they've thoroughly wrecked it until you can't do anything more with it the other thing i enjoyed about this is that 
after the spot where Taui chokeslams Misawa onto Kabashi's leg, Kabashi spends absolutely ages selling it on the outside, really gets oh, over this yes, devastating oh, move. He gets loads more tape on his on his leg, so he looks like, you know, one-eighth one of Boris Karloff. And <laughs> the most brutal thing, actually, is after where, as soon as he tries to get back in the ring, Kawada kicks him oh, in the no, face. Oh, no, not Kawada. Yeah. Oh, no. I, Straight yeah. in the face. It's, it's horrendous. Yeah. And even... Even when Kabashi's not in the ring, his leg is getting worked over. At one point, Kawada gives Misawa a powerbomb, one of uh, many powerbombs Misawa will receive from Kawada in this match. And just out of the corner of your eye, you can see Tawei, like, fuck Kabashi's leg into the barricade. <laughs> it's sort of incidental it reaction, but it's still there. You just see, a, you see like, a flash of, a, like, a boot just going by as it goes into, and it goes into the barricade. It's on, yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. And, I mean, it's... It's it's a masterclass in how to put someone in a wheelchair. But yeah, it yeah. really is. Um, can I can I just um, sort of make a, a point at, 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 at this juncture yeah. about how it's a funny thing. When I first watched this match, right, I was about sixteen years old, I think, somewhat seventeen, maybe something like that. And at that point, the trend in what was considered to be good or excellent um, uh, wrestling in the U.S had moved on to, um, um, it, it wasn't really flippy or anything like that, but it was real heavy work rate, kind of um, early ROH, yeah. um, when they were still in the sort of the, the, the gym hall um, kind of style, right? Um, uh, which was great, because I love guys like Loki and, and Dragon and all those, those people. But actually, when you actually watch these matches, what's striking is that they're actually using, for the most part, very traditional um, uh, wrestling staple, move staples. Yeah. Um, they, they modify a lot of stuff and they create a lot of stuff, but the base of it all is very much kind of like wrestling that I think, in a lot of ways, would be quite familiar to um, a US fan, certainly of the um, of maybe the 70s, the 80s, um, yeah. in, in certain territories. I think so. Like, I mean, like we said, wrestling isn't about the moves. Jerry Lawler can have an amazing match with just punches, the fist Everyone. drop, and the power driver. Yeah. Because it's, exactly. it's not about what you do. I mean, this Kabashi versus Sasaki match that I mentioned earlier, they have a chop battle that, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say this, lasts four and a half minutes. I timed it. It's just chops. And they, they tell a story with it. You know, there's an ebb and flow of who's on top. Um, it, it's literally just the one move. And that could be a match in itself. It, it's absolutely mm, yeah. fantastic. Now, having said that, you did say um, you know, it's quite standard moves. The head drops do begin. Yes, around match. this time. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, yeah. Th they yeah. begin um, now. Much as I love Misawa, his um, rear face lock is is really bad. <laughs> it never looks convincing as a move, and Kawada clearly knows but this it, it, because he isn't it. Isn't it nice though that um, even Misawa, this oh, man that we that, that we would look upon as the for many people the default number one wrestler yeah, he's, he's of all time, one. spoken of in you know tones reserved usually for sort of like gods, right? Even he can just have a fucking nightmare on a holder once or twice, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, and yeah, you're right. It looked like fucking shit. Right. So um, Kawada clearly knows that um, the crowd needs to be protected from, from this move because mm. he just comes up to Misawa, grabs him from behind, and gives him a backdrop driver right on his head. Now, at this point, if, if you're not familiar with Misawa, um, Misawa actually, um, Daniel's grimacing because he knows what I'm, I'm about to, I'm about oh, to say. Uh, in 2009, Misawa uh, passed away uh, in the ring from virtually this exact move. The one, the problem with the King's Road, and I think the major problem is that we got this build-up of callbacks to um, 
to previous matches and ever greater intensity. It was really a sort of arms race. You know, in one match, someone, Misawa would get the pin after the first Tiger Driver. In another big match, someone would kick out and then it would take three Tiger Drivers and then people would be coming up with new finishers. Most famously, things like uh, Kabashi's Burning Hammer, um, Kawada's Ganso Bomb, uh, Misawa's Tiger Driver 91. And so the intensity of, this ma of these matches really did ratchet up to unsustainable levels. By the time Misawa was really carrying no on his back as the company owner and top star in 2009 when business was really bad and he didn't think he could retire because the company needed him, you know, it wasn't as if the move in itself was more dangerous than any he'd taken. It was just the straw that broke the camel's back. So I think when we watch yeah, these just... matches, it's something to bear in mind that, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily feel hugely squeamish watching these matches because firstly they've happened you know there's nothing no, nothing yeah. we can do is gonna bring Masawa back but also um and it's a cliche to say someone died doing what he loved but Masawa, you know chose to take all these moves and to take all these risks you know wrestling was really a craft for him it was something that he ended up paying an incredibly high price for but i think in a way um this is maybe a poor way of phrasing this but it was it would almost be uh, disrespectful to the sacrifices he made with his body uh, to, not to watch these matches. I understand why people don't want to see um, Misawa getting dropped on his head, knowing that how his life—that was exactly how his life ended. But it's it's the same as like the hardcore championship matches when you watch them now. I mean, like the yeah. the Daft Battle Royals, and they're talking about brain cells being scrambled and things like that. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable viewing, and it's like the Benoit argument that people don't watch Benoit matches. They just don't, you know, they they just can't separate the two. But I think it's just a case of you need to, yeah. I mean, oh, oh, you know, obviously, these things, because people were so, you know, enthusiastic about it, and because the needs kept coming to make it better and better, to the point where it became untenable, you know, it does have its cost, but, you know, in, in the process, they are incredible matches, and you are right in saying, no, it would be disrespectful to then, you know, just totally ignore them, because then what, you know, what would the point of all this sacrifice have been? If you're just not going to watch them. Yeah, exactly. And so, just just something to bear in mind, I think, for uh, for our listeners, because we'll we'll go back to Miss Hour and the King's Road. I'm sure it's a later date. So the match really builds to a wonderful crescendo. They do a fantastic job uh, teasing Kentakabashi's moonsault, which in his oh, early career yeah. was his really his main finisher, I think. And they do an amazing job teasing it. You know. He'll, he'll go up to the top rope and then Taue will choke slam him off or something like that. And when he does hit it, it gets an amazingly good near fall because they're building up. And Kabashi, he's a big man. He's a, his athletic background was uh, rugby. Um, amazingly graceful moonsault. Like, it, it, oh, for the yeah. most part, he gets yeah. a lot of air on it. It, yeah. it, look, it looks fantastic. I, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Other than a distinct lack of talent or application, what could possibly physically make him better at doing moonsaults than Lita ever was? Um, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> but that's a thing I think, uh, which is just you know the guy shouldn't be able to do a moonsault that good. No, it's it's know. like um, it's like when you see someone like uh, Chris Hero nowadays. Now you know Chris Hero yeah. at the moment. Current Chris Hero is a big fat bastard, but my God, it doesn't matter. He can still do all the moves that he that he could do it to you know, anybody way it's you're good on the it's, lad it's it's better because he's fat it actually is because you and I, I was i was having this conversation a couple of days ago when he hits a strike we're, we're digressing massively now when he hits a strike there's so much heft behind it like his strikes are absolute yeah. filth but at the same time when he does something like you know 
kipping up back to his feet when he's lying on his back or something like a moonsault. You think, Jesus Christ, how did that big fat yeah. fucker do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It yeah. works on two Precisely. levels. It really works for him. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, back, I mean, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm sure we'll come back to um, issues of what wrestlers look like um, yeah, <laughs> physically um, within this series because, um, yeah, the time period we're talking about now, these four guys... These four guys don't look like wrestlers by today's standards, I don't think. Oh, no, um, there's, there's not a, a six-pack between them. You know, they no, are just... No. But actually, if I saw a guy... you know, I, I saw two guys coming up to try and do me harm, and one of them was like this glistening, chiseled Adonis, and one would, you know, look like... I don't know, look like Kevin Owens or Kenta Kabashi. I would, I would go for the... the um, the, the glistening chiseled Adonis every time mm. and try and take him on because you yeah. think you know maybe that's all just for show you look at someone like Kenta Kabashi you think Jesus Christ he's a big solid looking bastard and that's really um, traditionally the uh, you know Vince McMahon has this idea uh, that wrestlers should look like John Cena and you can see every you know sculpted veiny muscle on their bodies um, the ideal striation <laughs> Gary Stridham Gary the, Stridham the, wow um, the, uh, the ideal traditionally in Japan has been very different you know people who look like they play in the you know in the scrum in the rugby team someone like mm. Kabashi and Misawa you know they're they're, they're, they're athletes but they it, really it, are you know like big top, solid like a, looking guys at the end of the day yeah like even like an Ishii now right yeah like Ishii is just a little little pit bull right that's yeah yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, even by like 99, when I've been watching the Vader Masao match in 99, Masao looks so fucking old. Oh, like, the, be- like, the, the, the belly on him, man. Yeah. He, he looks like, you, you just think, you know. And that, and that's beer, that's not roids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, it probably is as well, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, that's mostly beer, that belly. Oh, yeah, like, um, 99, you hadn't moved on to sort of neckbeard Masao. That was a, uh, that was a different era. <laughs> Yeah, when he was just a really nice guy. Yeah, there's actually, um, I did hear a story. Misawa actually um, wrestled a show in Coventry in 2005. That was a Noah, that, that, yeah, that was that Noah yeah. show. That you were this guy was in Channel Super Show and they had a Noah match on it. And oh, I yeah. did hear a story that someone was waiting in the queue and this door opened to the side of them and it's Misawa popping out for a crafty fag. He hadn't realised that people were lining up to get in and Misawa just smiles at him and goes back indoors. Before the smoking man, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. Yeah, Miss Hour liked his booze, liked his fags. Anyway, um, back back to the match once again. <laughs> We're getting towards the end, believe me. Um, so, well, I I have a point to make about Kabashi in this match. Go on, David. I I noticed that we were talking about you're counting along, you know, um, you know, counting the time for that chop session. For the last good five ten minutes, Kabashi is never on his feet in this match. No. No. He's always he's all he's always down, and I love that. Yeah, his work's that. amazing. His exactly. work is great while he's doing that. He's not he's I he's, mean, he's not standing up, but he's working. No, there's a there's a moment where I think is it Taui and Kawada oh, like they're they're stomping the the shit out of Misawa on the yeah. floor, and Kabashi just really runs on top of him. Yeah, it's and amazing. Like, like, takes the beating. All he can give is his body. It's like the raw emotion of it is is oh, is absolutely God. fantastic. And I, I have a. Yeah, I, mean, I have a very good. Um, I I genuinely believe that if I could get married again, Kabashi, I would would be my best man because <laughs> there's no friends that can be as good a tag partner as no. Kabashi in this match. This is best man worthy. You, you know what Sting needed back in the day, right? Sting <laughs> needed a tag partner. This is what fucking Becky Lynch fucking needs now. Sense. That's this what is he needed. what. Can you imagine what happened next week when fucking they're, they're, they're that desperate? They've, they've scraped the barrel. They've got Kurt Hawkins back. There's no one else. The fucking... 
the fucking music comes on and they take a chance on a, a fucking 52-year-old Kenta Kabashi as Becky Lynch's tag partner. <laughs> I mean, no one, no one knows who it is in the audience. Like, I mean, he'd be man, top three workers of the year. <laughs> yeah. Kabashi in NXT. Yeah, no, but, um, but Kabashi in this is just, I mean, I think it's important for people to sort of know, and again, we'll, we'll cover this in more depth, but the fact that when Kabashi debuted, the guy didn't win a match for what, 100 matches? 72, I think, was the... Um... Oh, 72. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get the fuck out of here with your round <laughs> estimates. <laughs> yeah, fuck me. Uh, but you know, like um, that's crazy, and that is the kind of booking that makes these matches. Like this is twenty years old now. Yeah, and this doesn't look a day out of place now. This could be on an NXT revival show, fucking you know, or whatever, and people would go ape shit for it, right? American fans would go ape shit for this. I got no doubt if that amount of booking went into it. Yeah, you know, it, it's literally yeah. years because pushes in Japan, tr- again traditionally, um, tend to be quite glacial. It takes you, you know. Like we said in Kabashi, uh, 70 odd um, matches to even get your first win, and then you gradually work your way up the card. And I mean, Kawada, I think, didn't beat Misawa in their first 14 meetings because, yeah. he, and this is when Kabashi, for, uh, sorry, Kawada for a lot of this time was the number two Japanese wrestler, but because Misawa was above him in the hierarchy, it took him so long for him to even get his first win. Like, it, it's, it's always a really big thing if you beat someone who's booked you know above you and you beat them for the first time that was huge in all japan you know mm. think about uh jun akiyama how long it took him to uh oh, get God. a win over misawa i think seven years from his debut yeah yeah and but i think yeah one of the great things about this match that we've said not just kabashi's world but misawa the desperation of two guys who are really up against it and being absolutely beasted by the holy demon army there's choke slams to the outside um, on Miss Hour from the uh, from the apron no less that's a horrendous <laughs> yeah. book to be taking and Miss Hour you know he fights against it um, for so long he ho- actually holds on to the rope as if he doesn't want to be cast into you know the, the the pit beyond until Kawada lariats him on the back of the head and then Tai gives him the choke slam it's absolutely on brutal. the back of the head as well yeah, like, it's, it's just it's, so it's, inhumane <laughs> it's brutal and that's that, that's not legal in MMA like, like, like we've said Kabashi throws himself on Misawa's body post chokeslam. He he also holds on to his leg to stop uh, Kawada getting him up for the power bomb. He... Seriously, by this point, right, if you're religiously inclined, which I'm not, fair enough, but even I can see, like, the, the closest match that I, I've got to this is, is actually a, a, a lucha match, um, which is Sangre Shikana um, versus MS1, yeah. um, which is one of the greatest lucha brawls you, of all you time. You mentioned that match a and... lot. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yes, I do. I, 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 to get round to watching it, it is on my my, my watch list. Yeah, yes, I, mean, I mean, I'm not going to go about it too much because this isn't a Lucha podcast, but there is a level of kind of um, this this weird combination of ecstasy, catharsis, like, uh, you know, a total um, catharsis combined with just brutality, which um, I think this match um, kind of um, uh, reminds me of in some ways, actually. Yeah, I mean... And something I would um, something I would compare that to is um, there's another All Japan match actually 1996 uh, World's Strongest Tag League Final which was again the Holy Demon Army versus Misawa and uh, Junakiyama uh, this time oh, instead of Kabashi amazing match but um, I th- I'm trying to remember what the spot is that Akiyama takes I think it's the it's the choke slam off the apron to the outside I think mm. and he takes that about 
15-20 minutes into the match and to all intents and purposes Jun Akiyama is dead for the rest of that match yeah. he can't do anything the, about the last 10 minutes of the match is Misawa and Kabaka uh, sorry um, Tawa and Kawada double teaming Misawa and there's a couple of occasions at which Akiyama can muster just enough strength within himself to break up the pin but you know he can't do it and that's the same as in this match Kabashi his legs don't work no they're knackered all he can do is put his body in between the men who are trying to do his friend harm and I think Mm. and this is what we were saying earlier about stories being told purely through the action in the ring you cannot speak a word of Japanese I barely do and you can really sense the bond between these these two wrestlers the merciless you know the merciless healery of the Holy Demon Army I mean the finish is literally Kawada does all the finishes to Misawa he powerbombs him so many times while Tawa is just there stopping Kabashi from crawling over and you get the sense that even if Tawa wasn't there to block him Kabashi probably wouldn't make it it finishes like a great history painting it seriously does. Yeah. You could take a snapshot of that at the end with Kabashi just grabbing it. It's just, it's beautiful stuff. Um, as I say, I think it's the great, it's certainly the greatest, I think the greatest tag team match of all time. Yeah, no, no question. Um, for me, no it's my favourite match. Now, yeah, one of the things we wanted to talk about is that, is this particularly, I know this was my first um, Purosu match, but is this a good one for someone to start with? Because, you know, like we've said about the context, it's also 43 minutes long. It's a bit of an epic. Mm, you know, yeah. Is this is this like something that's quite jarring for a first time viewer, or can you just enjoy it in isolation? You know, do you, do you need to know all this stuff that's gone into it as much as we've talked about the context? Can you just enjoy the action for what it is? I I think you can. Um, I think it very much depends on your mindset, and I think people have different mindsets when they approach things like this, and neither one's right and neither one's wrong it's just um, a different approach to things some people um might i don't know for example be already kind of quite cool with um the notion that there's no english commentary for example yeah um you might be someone who um watches a lot of films in different languages or whatever and, and reads subtitles you might be someone who uh listens to music that's in a different like you know you, you might already have that little bit of um experience with being able to deal yeah. with um a performance that isn't delivered exclusively in english um but because pro wrestling commentary in particular in getting over the motivations um, oh, when it's good it should be um, I'm talking Lance Russell and Gordon Soley here um, yeah. and perhaps not, not some more contemporary figures Corey Graves, stuff like that but yeah. um, you know, it's really important to getting stuff over and I think sometimes if you're lacking that and I, mean, I remember I showed this to um, our good friend the mysterious Gary yeah. um, who will probably be mentioned on this podcast again uh, a few years ago uh, before he'd really gotten into Japanese wrestling and he said that it was just like watching a different world to him. He, The first thing he asked me when the match started was, who's the heel and who's the face? Which isn't actually, as much as we might have talked about the dastardly tactics involved in this match, isn't actually as easy a question to answer. Yeah, I've, I've used the term heel, but really, I mean, it's it's less about that and more about, I think, the intensity of, of the roles in the psychology. You know, the, the dominant tag team are the one who's really under the cosh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's not easy to identify... Um, a, a, a sort of stereotypical heel and face right away. Um, when the match first started, Gary, you know, because they're, they're sort of going through a few holds and things, there's a few strikes done, there's a kind of testing out period, and Gary was sort of saying to me, oh, right, well, I can see that obviously, um, you know, you, you must be more into wrestling these days for kind of the um, the, the physical aspect of it, the, uh, the, uh, the, the actual wrestling itself. And I kind of thought, well, that's weird, because to me, this is the most emotional, like, 
you know, um, um, sort of over the top almost in some ways match I've ever seen. Um, so I do think that there are barriers to it. And I think perhaps these days, given the fact that, you know, New Japan is on American television, yeah. um, for God's sake, and, you know, Jim Ross is commentating on Wrestle Kingdom. New Japan has grown so much um, in the last few years that I think that in some ways people certain people that don't want to jump, jump straight into it there's nothing wrong I think with jumping into a little bit of stuff that's maybe more contemporary you might have seen some of these guys work the indies or Ring of Honor or whatever yeah. and you want to watch that first that's totally cool yeah. but I think that it stands alone in terms of its narrative and I think that you can just dip into this and after the first couple of minutes once you've acclimatized to it I think it's just such a great match that you can watch it yeah I mean this yeah. was my first match and like I say I absolutely loved it I had no idea who any of these people were but I get yeah, just the just the the emotion and the psychology of it and I think and this might be one of the last things to talk about because we've got two more matches to uh, to consider but I think this provides a bit of a rejoinder to some of the stereotypes of uh, that Japanese wrestling is all about no selling which is complete nonsense it is yeah oh, absolutely yeah I mean what we yeah. have are there are parts where again I've talked about this idea of Tukon fighting spirit fighting through the pain but so you have bits where someone will get chopped and then you know they'll pop up and do a move and collapse but and i've seen those sort of spots done so badly in other matches the great thing about these guys is that they always work them in at the proper point you know you have this last gasp uh, desperation move before before uh, a wrestler collapses uh, think you know th things like that and uh, you know, Misawa will have this absolute onslaught of elbow strikes against someone. Kawada will pop out with some of his kicks, but you never feel as though it's it's excessive. You know, you never feel as though there isn't going to be selling somewhere down the line. And Kabashi in this match is, I think, the the exemplar of this. Much as you know, he out of a lot of uh, these guys, probably most out of all of them, has a reputation for uh, no selling. I think that reputation is is un undeserved really. I, 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 I would personally I would... go out on the limb here and say that this is the best selling performance I've ever seen in any wow. match. Yeah. But yeah, yeah without I mean, a shadow of a doubt. It's definitely up there. I would say that I always kind of thought that the, the book on Kabashi selling was more that he oversold than that he didn't sell. Um, it, it, if that makes sense. And some people pinpoint this match as being the, um, you know, with the whole messianic um, sort of spots and things. They, they pinpoint this as the match where Kabashi begins to be prone to too much overselling. Mm. I think that's kind of bullshit because Kabashi is essentially a cartoon kind of um, babyface hero that, um, you know, that doesn't really bother me. But, yeah, so there's that, that, that to talk about. Yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, there is, like, matches that have, like, no selling. Like, for example, I was listening to a podcast where talking about, you know, the promotion Basara. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, they, they had a match recently where somebody got hit with some ridiculous move like a, a head drop suplex or something like that and he kicked out at zero and then he did it again and he kicked out at zero again and i was like fucking hell like jesus two christ two kicks out at zero i don't think i've ever seen a, a, a proper kick out at zero it's usually always one but two in in consecutive fashion two zero kick outs that's jesus bad christ. no selling yeah exactly yeah. You, yeah. You, you think you know no selling watch basala yeah, well I'll come to no selling in a bit when we get to my match, but mm -hmm. the the one the one thing that I mentioned I mentioned earlier about my friend who's going on a honeymoon to Japan at the moment. Well, before he got married the day before, I thought I'm, I'm I'm you know I'm like we're kind of acquaintances, so I thought I'll give him a I'll give him a wedding gift. So I gave him this match to watch, 
<laughs> what, you just them, sent him a link? You know, yeah, just, you know, some people say that the day you get married is the day you turn turn into a man. I think that's absolute shite, and it's clearly the day you watch this match is the day that you turn into a man. <laughs> totally, man. Uh, okay, well... So what, last night of freedom, watching, you know, Misawa, Kabashi, Kawada, and Taui. Springsteen's written entire albums about watching K- K- Kabashi and, like... <laughs> oh, my God. So, um, we're not going to do star ratings on this podcast... You can probably guess what mine would be for this match if I was going to, but I think, you you know what, if if you, you know, if you do, if you just rely on your star ratings to get, um, I'm getting on my soapbox here, but if you just rely on the star rating, like the number, that doesn't really give you the essence of what wrestling is, you know, uh, you know, watch the match, read the review, listen to the podcast. Person here says, back in the 90s, Bret Hart bought a mansion in America from Monty Burns. Did he ever sell it back to him? I thought his mansion was in Calgary. I never heard that story, so I thought I would ask he, you. He, he, um, he, he, I, I know that Bret had a giant. I, I don't think, I don't remember him ever living in the United States, you know, until, uh, I know he's got a place in, he's got the place in Hawaii now, but that's after he retired in Kona, but um, I don't remember him ever living outside of Calgary. Um, he had a, he built a huge house in Calgary. Um, I think this was in the late '80s, even maybe early '90s. It was before he was like a big star because I remember when he because Bret Hart was always pretty frugal when it came to money. Well, you know his his nickname was the Frugal Canadian, so he was pretty frugal when it came to money, which is a good trait. And then he bought the big house, and people were going like, "God, he's going to have to wrestle until he's you know 50 to pay off that big house." And um, as it turned out, you know, he, you know, he ended up making a lot more money than anyone ever imagined he would make in wrestling. But um, yeah, I, I don't know unless maybe he bought a house and then sold it, but he never lived in it. But I, I never remember him living anywhere but Calgary during his active career. All right, go ahead. We'll do one more each. Okay. <laughs> Sing of the